Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is David Tainter. Kate is off on uh, Thanksgiving break this week and Josh is, uh, is taking a breather himself. So I'm holding down the fort, but I'm lucky to be joined by uh, my colleague Tierney Sneed in DC. I think you're in DC, right? I Tierney, am how still are you? in DC. I am doing well. Good. And um, Josh Kavensky coming from Brooklyn, like maybe a mile uh, away. I, I, I'm good. I think that's, I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for joining joining me. Um, before we get going and get into the news, let's uh, hear just a quick word from our sponsor, Grady's Cold Brew. You know it, you love it, uh, and here we go. There are two kinds of cold brew drinkers out there, fair weather friends, this is what Josh called me last week, uh, who switch to hot coffee when the temperature dips, and then there's everyone else. With 36 servings per bag, Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit gives you the space to explore your coffee preferences for less than a buck a cup. Brew it hot on frigid mornings or spike it over ice for a chilly winter cocktail. Our velvety smooth coffee concentrate is brewed strong for every season. Ride out the winter by quarantining with Grady's and treat yourself to delicious gourmet coffee without stepping outside. That's important these days. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. So that's nice, a nice deal. Um, well, we are in the in the Thanksgiving week, so I figured um, we could kind of touch base on kind of what the coronavirus picture is looking like. But uh, maybe before we get to that, Tierney, could you give us an update on the, uh, I think you've been calling it the faux coup yeah. um, that the Trump administration is trying to wage yeah, we're, and we're, not very successfully. We're really in the, the death rattles at this point. The biggest news I think we've gotten in the last 24 hours was that um, the GSA, um, the administrator, uh, gave her uh, ascertainment of Biden's victory. I think she sort of avoided using that word in her letter, but it's been interpreted as, as such. And we saw the Biden team launch a .gov website or getting indications that briefings are starting to happen. Uh, and in the meantime, we're seeing several key states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, certify their votes. There's still some, you know, lawsuits, kind of embers, if you will. But to say they're long shots doesn't even really do it. It's really grasping at straws what we're seeing happen in courts. And you're seeing judges getting increasingly, increasingly frustrated that um, they're still dealing with this. So I think Trump won't hasn't conceded yet. I don't know if he'll ever concede, but the, the page is definitely turning. People are moving on. Uh, and we're hopefully uh, towards the end of this sort of post-election limbo where we were, had to pay attention for all these sort of attempts at undermining the election that even if they never looked like they were going to be successful are still really notable and concerning because you can only imagine, you know, what this would have been like if the election had been much closer or if there had been, you know, more sort of administrative debacles like we saw in the primary. Right. I saw I noticed on Saturday the a judge in Pennsylvania dismissed the, the Trump campaign's lawsuit with prejudice, right? And I wondered if you could explain that um 
for people like me who who have you know are not quite familiar with that yeah. term, but does it basically mean like fuck off and stop wasting my time? <laughs> that's, 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 a good, that's a good layman's uh, explanation of it. Uh, the the full opinion was really quite a slapdown. And this judge, this is the judge who was presiding over the case where Rudy Giuliani last week uh, did the oral arguments for the campaign. And in those oral arguments, he was extremely patient, extremely deferential. He really gave the Trump team as much time as they wanted to kind of put it all out there. And you even saw some members of the team sort of spinning like, oh, we really developed a great rapport. You know, this shows how seriously the judge is taking it. And this, this opinion really just demolished uh, that that sense. You know, they called it sort of a Frankenstein case, the judge did, of how they try to kind of weld all these claims together. And when you, when you dismiss something with prejudice, what that basically means is, you know, you can't just come back to the judge with a few kind of tweaks to your complaint to try again. If it's without prejudice, you can come back after you sort of reworked your lawsuit in a way that might make it workable. This with prejudice means that uh, the Trump is or excuse me, the judge is basically saying, get out of my hair. <laughs> so the, the, the Trump campaign has uh, appealed that to the, the Third Circuit, but the appeal itself is pretty confusing and contradictory and sort of doesn't really color in within the lines of what you're supposed to do when you're appealing the case. So we're all watching that. Um, but the, that, that court wants to wrap this up very quickly. And I would say within the next day or two, um, that will be resolved We'll see if they'll make another go at this U.S. Supreme Court. But so far, the U.S. Supreme Court has not done anything that has suggested they actually want to get involved in any of this mess. Yeah. And maybe Josh or Tierney, I'm, you know, either of you feel free to jump in. But you made a good point, Tierney, about like the election not being close. And maybe that's sort of a saving grace for some of these desperate legal maneuverings that Trump campaign is trying to trying to pursue. I mean, how if it were close, I mean, how could you see it play out differently? Or, you know, would there be more kind of risks or worries that some of these efforts would be able to kind of be accomplished or, I don't know, brought to bear? From the legal standpoint, in several of these cases, what they've come down, or at least what has allowed them to get sort of shoved away off the table so quickly is that judges have, have asked these plaintiffs have you what are what are the votes in question here how how many ballots are we talking about and the trump campaign when you really press them on it or their allies when you really press it on them it's whenever they've been able to find these so-called irregularly irregularities it's you know dozens of ballots maybe a couple hundred and we're talking about races where the, the margin is tens of thousands in some places. So even if you wanted to give the Trump campaign or their allies all the benefit of the doubt with their allegations, they don't they wouldn't make a difference, which is why, you know, at least in some of these cases, we've, we haven't even had to talk about how sensational or bombastic or evidence free the claims are. You could just even look at the, the lawsuits on their own terms and say, well, this thing you're complaining about, even if you won, it wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> so that's one element of it. And, you know, another element just being that the the allegations themselves, you know, it, it was a it was a relatively smooth el- election. And we've seen with the audits that states have already done, things are lining up the way they looked like, you know, in the week after the election. So they're just there. The, the, there wasn't the sort of debacles that people were worried about that could have given the Trump campaign a lot of running room to try to stir more confusion. So they're having to turn to these wackadoo theories about, you know, Dominion voting vendor 
being some sort of communist front. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Josh, anything you would add to that? No, I mean, it just seems like we avoided the disaster scenario of the election hinging on Pennsylvania, Biden winning by like 500 votes, and there being a thousand votes that had arrived late or something. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think I, I would only just add to what I said. That's what Tierney said. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we can turn to um, a bit of a COVID update, too, as we are fast approaching Thanksgiving this week. And then, you know, the Christmas holidays basically already kicked off as well. Josh, you've been covering COVID for us for a long time. I mean, since the battle days of the spring, which um, it's sort of starting to feel eerily reminiscent of, right? I mean, there was this Wall Street Journal story over the weekend that some of the bodies that were stored in these kind of frozen morgue trucks are like still there, right? Still being held in- In New York City. Yeah, I mean, City, yeah. there's the issue with the disposal of the dead, but uh, if you want to look at sort of the other half of the COVID curve, uh, the epidemic curve, um, one interesting thing that we're seeing around the country is that the same kind of testing bottlenecks that we saw happen uh, in June and July with the pandemic in the Sun Belt, and then also in March and April when the first you know Northeast kind of cities were hit, um, we're seeing the same kind of limits and constraints on testing. I think in New York City today, there are places that have like two or three hour lines. Um, elsewhere in the country, it could take hours and days to get your test results back, um, which you know, in advance of the Thanksgiving holiday, especially uh, is useless. So that's one thing that's reminiscent, I think of what happened back in March, and suggests that you know those problems weren't so much solved as uh, you know, made made kind of moot, I suppose, by the fact that case loads were comparatively low compared to now. Um, but I think there are much more worrying trends in terms of hospital capacity. There's basically a national staffing shortage in terms of healthcare staffing. Um, you know, New York City is, I know, running low. Uh, Austin has imported a bunch of people. El Paso has, I mean, um, Wisconsin and the upper north, uh, the upper Midwest have. You know, North Dakota. I think both, either North or South Dakota, I'm not remembering which, but famously a week or two ago, uh, issued this directive allowing healthcare workers who have been infected with COVID to continue to work uh, because there are just so few people available. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's a dire situation. I was talking to a doctor in Wisconsin on Friday who was telling me that his hospital system is around two weeks away from having to tell people, basically turn people around because there's just, there just won't be any capacity to treat them. Um, so these kinds of really difficult decisions where doctors have to basically triage and decide, you know, which patient am I more likely to save uh, because there's limited resources to allocate. I mean, we're already there in large parts of the country. Right. Tierney, is there anything you can tell us about kind of, I don't know, what you've observed in D.C.? It seems like, you know, cases are spiking there a little bit. Um, I just see on Twitter, you know, other political journalists I follow and stuff um, talking about alarming spikes in cases. And I don't know, I'm just curious what your experience has been lately. Yeah, with that or... I, you know, I, I think the most visceral experience for me was I did go to the Hill last week, just on Monday night, you know, hoping to do kind of the first bit of reporting on the Hill that I've tried to do since the election. And, you know, I saw Senator Chuck Grassley walk by me. And usually, you know, he's a very important member chairs the Judiciary Committee. He's, you know, number three uh, in sort of the the line of of, uh, importance. And he, and for a second, I thought to myself, you know what, I don't need to talk to him. He's 87. I would feel so guilty if I gave him COVID. So I'm not going to talk to him. And then the next day, it turns out that he himself had tested positive for COVID and I was the one who dodged the bullet. <laughs> yeah, so truly. I think, you know, I haven't really left my house or at least my neighborhood uh, 
since this all started. I So the Hill has been the only time I've really been in indoors with lots of people. Um, everyone's wearing masks on the Senate side. So that, that aspect of it feels safe, but that's been sort of my only experience. And, and every time it, it has been I felt a little dicey and I've talked to Hill staffers who are, you know, canceling plans for Thanksgiving because they found out that someone they interacted with on the Hill was exposed. So that's been my sort of line into the DC experience. And it is, it has been a lesson because a lot of these members are getting regular tests and it goes to show that you could be uh, not showing symptoms and testing negative for a couple of days. And it takes a while to even for that positivity to show up. So everyone has to take it very seriously. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it does feel like there's a little bit of like a Capitol Hill COVID outbreak with more and more, you know, Rick Scott, I guess, announcing he tested positive last week. Um, like you said, Chuck Grassley, um, Don Young, who's like maybe the oldest yeah. uh, member of Congress, right? I think he's about the same age as Grassley, but um, yeah, not not young people and uh, not, a, not a virus you want to catch at any age, but especially if you are, um, you know, in your twilight years, I guess. So, uh, Tierney, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about some census reporting you've been doing. Um, you've had a number of stories, starting with an exclusive last week on just kind of some issues with the data being collected and um, just kind of trying to sort out issues with that before, I guess, the final results were sent to the president or like the White House, I guess, um, yeah. and ultimately Congress. So tell us kind of about your exclusive reporting there and, and what our listeners should know about kind of where the census stands at the moment. So we're sort of in the end game here of what has been a years long effort by the Trump administration to hijack the census, to execute a political agenda that is both in line with Trump's own, you know, unique antipathy towards immigrants and sort of a long-standing Republican strategy to change the way that political power is doled out in the country. So go, dating back to the citizenship question, which were reported on doggedly, and to some of the other changes that the Census Bureau has been forced to make that have been litigated, that have been reversed, they're still dealing with these sort of shenanigans, even in the final days of the administration. What we're, what we're all focusing on now is this Trump policy that was announced in July that would exclude from the count for congressional apportionment undocumented immigrants. This means that states that like California and Florida and Texas that would be expecting to gain seats uh, in the next decade because of their population growth would not see, you know, would, would not get those seats or get, you know, a few number of seats than what, what is expected uh, in the next decade because they can't count um, this aspect of their populations. This has been a hugely um, hotly litigated policy. We now have three lower court uh, de decisions striking it down as illegal, one of which saying it's unconstitutional as well. But the other effect it's had on the census is that to implement it, beyond just getting those court decisions overturned, Trump will need to still be in office. And because of the pandemic, the Census Bureau had been hoping to, hoping to have four extra months to finish this work. And it had un unveiled this plan back in April to give itself till April of 2021 to release this apportionment data, which... At the time, of course, we didn't know who was going to be at off in office by then, but now we know that's going to be when the Joe Biden administration is in power. And presumably, regardless of what the courts finally say about this policy, they will not be implementing it. So now it's been this race to 
try to get these numbers out sooner, to try to get these numbers out uh, before inauguration, before another sort of deadline that's looming, which, you know, there is a kind of a gray area, but I've, I've heard been described as January 10th or, 10th or January 11th when the, the president is supposed to give these numbers to Congress so that Trump can still implement this policy. And what I reported last week was that in the final stages of the survey in which the, the bureau is going through the data, doing certain quality checks, fixing any sort of issues that have arisen, they have identified some completely routine and standard issues that are going to delay what it what its target date was for releasing these numbers. And had the bureau had the normal amount of time to, to do this processing work, this would not be a big deal. But because the administration has put the, the bureau on this extremely expedited timeline to finish this up so these numbers can be released while Trump is still in office, the bureau had to give the administration the news last week that sorry, we're not going to be able to do that. It's going to take us till the end of January, beginning of February to release these numbers because this, this, these, these minor issues, I mean, I say minor in the sense that they're routine issues, need to be worked through. And what's interesting is that what publicly and their official statements, Director Dillingham, Steve Dillingham, the director of the Bureau, is acknowledging these anomalies, that's the scientific term for them, but he's refusing to say that they're going to delay the release to the point that the release is not going to happen until after Trump leaves office. So we're all now on the sort of lookout for indications that the Bureau will still be under pressure to rush this last stage of the Senate census and potentially produce inaccurate numbers. So Trump has at least a chance of executing this plan. Uh, the, the the other big test will be what the Supreme Court does in dealing with these cases swirling around the policy. It hears its oral arguments in the case uh, next Monday. So we'll all be watching that. But it's still an unknown of whether they would even release their decision before inauguration. So a lot of moving parts that we'll be following very closely. Yeah. Can you give us an example of what some of these anomalies are? I mean, you know, I guess we can maybe guess it's just kind of like you say routine data collection type issues but can you yeah can you shine a light I, on I, kind of what that yeah what that looks I, like? I i don't have super detailed uh information on what the exact anomalies were i was told by one source it was around a dozen but i'm also hearing that as they continue to look they might be finding even more so this is sort of an example of what it could be like but with the disclaimer i don't know if it's exactly this but how it's been explained to me is you're looking at the data and you just see oh this one area the numbers we have here look higher than what they should be. So let's take another look and see why why they're showing up higher for this one city or this one census precinct or whatnot, or census tract, excuse me. And they have to look at that. Oh, here's the, here's the weird thing that happened. But then they have to kind of redo the step of processing it. And it's redoing that step that they're now expecting it will take an additional 20 days is what they told the Bureau last week, or the Bureau told the Commerce Department last week that will push it back beyond... Uh, inauguration. Right. Gotcha. And is it true? I, I know you had a follow-up story last week too. Carolyn Maloney, the um, chair of the House Oversight Committee, did they, you know, her committee has oversight over the census process, right? And is it true, like, like she found out through the kind of public reporting that there were these issues and not from the Bureau yeah, itself? Yeah, so she, she issued a letter a couple hours after we published our report to Director Gillingham Citing the public reporting, the New York Times is, uh, confirmed my reporting soon thereafter, and she cited that reporting and said, you know, we've been asking for briefings on this for weeks. 
you've been canceling briefings on us. I think, you know, typically the Bureau gives the, the Hill, you know, once a week comes over and briefs them on this, on this stuff. And according to a letter, at least some of those briefings have been canceled, though I do believe some are still happening. We would like you to, you know, explain to us exactly what these delays are and which, what they mean for the timeline. And I, I'm working now to kind of get a sense of what response, if any, they've gotten. I, I don't have that confirmed yet, so stay tuned. But the Hill is very, very interested on this. They've been uh, paying close attention to this and sort of previous previous iterations of debates over COVID funding and government funding. Democrats have sought but so far have failed to secure extra time for the Census Bureau to uh, kind of work through these issues. We'll be watching if that that's something that gets placed in the next round of government funding that, you know, the, the Congress will need to pass uh, next month. So this is going to be something the Hill is going to stay very, very uh, cued in on. Yeah. I'm curious to get your take on the, the Associated Press story um, this morning that I think there's a woman in Alabama, a census count manager who had told, uh, you know, people who go door to door knocking on houses, you know, to try to get an accurate count. I, could, I think basically to count households as one, just one person if they don't receive a, a response, I guess, after trying once or twice. What was your sense of that? Is that something that that happens kind of? So this has been a very, uh, very, very touchy issue. Uh, as I mentioned, the the administration put the Census Bureau on this expedited timeline uh, to finish the census before Trump leaves office. And this is after it had previously backed a proposal to give the census extra time. And around the time that the, this their counting schedule was expedited, you saw a lawsuit, you know, challenging that that expedited plan. And with that, you started hearing both reporters and in the litigation itself, um, these sort of uh, assertions or allegations that the enumerators were being told to sort of cut corners, skip steps. And when all is said and done, instead of kind of going, you know, doors four, five, six times to try to interview people, which is how you get accurate information to just sort of take a guess at, at, at you know who how many people could live there so you can mark the the household as complete the bureau has denied that there's any sort of systemic effort to rush the census you know they've they painted some of these these workers as either disgruntled people or one-offs and there's now you know sort of government watchdog agencies within the government who are investigating some of these claims so i think we're going to continue to hear about that but it got to the point that the judge who was presiding over this you know, rushed rushed count lawsuit was just fielding claims. People were just calling her chambers to, to lay out accounts like the one the AP published this morning. So it's it's certainly a huge concern. And I should add that that lawsuit continues to be litigated. There's there's currently a schedule for a trial, perhaps in March over some of these claims. And a key question is whether the Bureau has sort of fudged its calculus for how it how it puts out its completion rate. The Bureau is claiming that they've, they've done as good as any other census, that they've been able to count 99.9% of households. But what the challengers are alleging is that the Bureau has changed its sort of formula for putting out that number. And one of the ways it was able to do this is to have its enumerators just mark houses off as completed without going through the fourth and fifth and sixth attempt to try to interview that household. And that has skewed the picture of how well the, the on the ground field operations uh, really did uh, to, to try to count every household in America. 
Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I know you mentioned a Supreme Court uh, hearing coming up, but anything else our listeners should just kind of be on the lookout for on this census story? I mean, this is one of those things that feels like it kind of flies under the radar a little bit. And obviously, you've done great reporting, um, you know, over months, if not like more than a year or more on it. But but um, I don't know what's you know, what's one or two things our listeners should just kind of be on the lookout for next. I, I think I think what the Biden administration does is going to be really fascinating because it's really something they're going to have to figure out right when they hit the ground. As I mentioned, you have this apportionment data, which now is slated for release in late January, early February. I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of that data, a lot of uh, emphasis to really look under the hood and see if there's any other evidence that these final phases were rushed. And maybe, you know, does the, the, the Biden administration tell the bureau, listen, take a couple more weeks to work through some other issues. I think that's going to be an immediate question we'll be looking at. Then there's another round of data that's supposed to come out. Usually it comes out in late March. We don't know yet if there's going to be more of a delay, but that's the redistricting data that is used once all these states receive the number of House seats they're going to get to actually draw those districts. And that is also the data that's used to draw state legislative district, even sort of your local school board district. What that data is going to look like is a, a big question mark. And just like that AP story you referenced, a big problem is, is if you didn't have enumerators actually interviewing the people in the households, you're not getting get, getting key information like race, age, gender, things that normally go in this data set. So we're going to be looking to see if, how that data gets released, how accurate it is, whether there needs to be additional time to process it because of all the, the rushing the Bureau had to do while the Trump administration is in power. So those are two big, big deadlines I'll be looking at. And the Biden administration, or excuse me, the Biden transition team has announced that two very well-respected census data experts are on the transition team as part of these sort of beachhead teams. Uh, so they're they're certainly taking these issues very seriously. But what exactly they're going to do when they, when they, you know, when President, President-elect Biden takes that oath of office is still not fully known yet. Yeah, gotcha. Well, I definitely encourage all of our listeners and readers to check out Tierney's coverage. Um, it's been really great. And thanks for kind of taking us through it. So, Josh, I wanted to turn to uh, some more exclusive TPM uh, reporting, just bringing you guys scoop after scoop here with this team. Um, I wanted to talk to you about a story you published, I guess that was last week, right? Um a profile of sorts on Giancarlo Granda, who is a, a former like pool attendant in Miami Beach who met the Falwells, you know, Jerry Falwell uh, Jr., the now ousted and I guess so somewhat disgraced president of Liberty University, an evangelical college, um, you know, a major player in kind of the evangelical world and also Republican politics. This story has been like swirling out there for a long time. It had this like Michael Cohen angle with it, right? Because there was some speculation that um, Cohen was involved in getting Falwell to endorse Trump late in the campaign in 2016. There's been all these kind of little bits and pieces over the, you know, over the last several years, I guess. But um, in the primary, sorry, in the primary, right. Um, but you actually traveled down to the D.C. area to spend some time with Granda. So I'm curious, maybe, Josh, you could start by just telling us how the story came about, kind of how you became interested in it or how you, you know, took the first steps towards reporting it out. Sure. Um, 
That's a lot. I mean, I first started speaking with Granda back in like late August, early September. Um, you know, we started emailing and then we arranged time to talk. Um, and it was immediately clear from speaking to him that he, I mean, he had a story to tell, but that his emotions were very raw. Um, that he really had not processed a lot of this stuff, a lot of what happened to him, a lot of it he hadn't processed, a lot of his, you know, the, detail, the nature of his involvement with the Falwells, um, but that he felt like he had an axe to grind, and that he felt like he wanted to, um, he felt like that the Falwells had kind of allowed his reputation to be destroyed by association with them, and that he was sort of on, he felt like he was on some sort of mission, I think, to, uh, reverse that to put his account out there. Um, so, you know, from our perspective, it was an interesting story, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, I think it's just the sheer, you know, I suppose hypocrisy of, you know, the first family of evangelical Christianity, the child of the founder of the moral majority, um, being involved in something like this, uh, and the extent to which, you know, Granda feels like, ends up feeling like he was thrown under the bus, Jerry Falwell's reaction, which is, in a sense threw his wife under the bus, um, and also all of just the details of the debauchery and excess that go along with that, kind of opposite uh, Jerry Falwell's um, job as president back then of Liberty University, right? right. And not like, to, sorry, yeah. not to jump in, but even like at Liberty, you're not like if you're a student, you're not allowed yeah. to drink alcohol, right? There's a sort of very kind of you're not allowed to um, dance with members of the opposite sex, uh, right? A very and, kind of conserv- conservative, I guess, social. Right. Um, Requirement. Well, and one interesting thing about that, on a side note, is that it also kind of intertwines in a sense with like this prosperity gospel idea. Because if you, uh, let's say, drink alcohol, um, it's banned, but the way out is to pay a very expensive fine. Um, and Jerry Falwell's sort of big claim to fame is that he rescued Liberty University, which his father founded. You know, Jerry Falwell Sr., the preacher, from these really dire financial straits. Um, but I think the other big reason that you mentioned why we we're interested is because. Um, in a sense, the story is related to Trump's rise to ascent to power. Uh, there was a big question in the Republican primary in 2016 how Trump uh, was able to secure the evangelical vote when you know his Republican opponent Ted Cruz was very much running in that lane. And you know, according to some kind of observers, at least initially had a lock on that sec- segment of the Republican electorate. Um, but what ended up happening was that Jerry Falwell endorsed Trump. And that threw a lot of evangelical voters to him. Um, and there was an interesting sort of series of events involving the Falwells that led to that, which were naked photos of Becky appearing um, in the hands of an adversary of the Falwells and Granda in a lawsuit in South Florida. Um, and Michael Cohen was hired to make those disappear. And lo and behold, a month or two later, um, Trump endorses, uh, Jerry Falwell endorses Trump. Um, so there was also that kind of element of it, which spurred our interest in the fact that Granda had a lot of visibility into what was going on at the time, that he was directly, he was, you know, involved with everybody at the time. He met Michael Cohen and Trump in 2012, years before that happened. Um, I think made the story really interesting from our perspective. Yeah. And there, speaking of Michael Cohen, there's an interesting moment in the piece where, you know, Granda becomes kind of part of the Falwell posse, for lack of a better word. And, um, you know, he's traveling with them, going to different events and stuff, and, no one seems to notice that he, I don't know, maybe sticks out among that group or or was sort of a recent addition to the group, except for Michael Cohen, right? And tell us kind of about what he noticed or what, uh, I don't know, what he said at that time. Yeah, so I think a little bit of background there is that within a few months of first meeting the Falwells, um, you know, Jerry and Becky were involved in Granda in uh, this big real estate deal, again, in Miami Beach. 
Um, and so, you know, Granda had already been meeting with Jerry about this, with representatives, with the business associates of the Falwells, trying to scout our property. And so in September 2012, around like, I suppose like six months after he first meets them, he goes up to Liberty and sees Trump speak. Uh, it's his first time at the camp- on campus. He feels like he's sort of a celebrity, partly because he sees everybody around him uh, having to obey these religious strictures, whereas he is you know, going off the weekend and drinking with the Falwells and shooting guns and driving around ATVs and stuff. Um, but so he's on this tour of campus with Trump and Michael Cohen and the Falwells and some Falwell associates. And at some point, you know, Michael Cohen turns to a Falwell associate and it's like, who's that guy? Dressed around with his shoulder at Granda. And uh, the associate says, uh, oh, it's a business partner of the Falwells. And meanwhile, you know, Granda is 21 years old. Um, and uh, Michael Cohen says, uh huh. You know, that's interesting. So, yeah. Right. And so Granda's now like 29, is that right? Um, trying to kind of move on with his life, I guess. Um, How's that going for him, or what was your sense from talking to him about kind of where he's at now, or or how he thinks about this time time of his life? Well, I mean, he he's had to spend a quarter of his life uh, dealing with the Falwells. Um, so, I mean, regardless of how he feels, and I think the facts of what happened, I mean, that's just psychologically is a big burden on him. Um, the fact that the relationship has deteriorated in the way that it has, um, you know, he feels that because this lawsuit filed over the real estate deal in South Florida led to his relationship with the Falwells, the fact of his relationship with the Falwells being exposed, um, you know, the, it led to legal threats, which he didn't like, and it just led to a lot of publicity. Um, he feels that his name was dragged through the mud, that his reputation was destroyed, and that, you know, Jerry did nothing to alleviate that. Uh, he, you know, Granda asked Jerry at various points to protect him legally. Uh, he asked Jerry to buy him out of the um, company that owned the real estate uh, asset in Miami Beach, and none of those things happened. Um, so Granda is upset about that. I think part of him, you know, part of him misses uh, the kind of familial relationship, not the sexual relationship that he had with the Falwell family, um, which is, you know, many. There, there are many layers of analysis you can subject that to, but he does, I think, partly. And he, I mean, he is, but he's bitter about it, and he he doesn't like that when you Google him, uh, you see a million articles calling him a pool boy. Um, he wishes that hadn't happened, and he's he's you know he's he's I think uh, he's very unhappy with that, and he does still kind of feel like he either should find a way to disappear from you know the public view, or he should try to dominate the narrative, which is what he's doing now with me and with other reporters, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious, you know, how without, I don't know, revealing too much of your reporting process or uh, anything that might be sensitive, but like, how was it, I guess, you know, talking to someone about such personal matters that, you know, obviously kind of became public and are under a microscope, but um, just, you know, is there anything you can tell us about how you approach reporting a story like that with a, with a source who's clearly like still kind of, like you say, processing his emotions from this time, but, um, you know, dealing with kind of, I don't know, difficult subjects too. Yeah. I, it took a lot of time to build up that trust. Um, it helped that, as I mentioned, I think he, this is all very raw for him. Um, one interesting thing that happened was that, you know, around during the reporting process, we approached the Falwells and we tried to get their perspective, um, on the record and they initially engaged and then they filed a lawsuit, which laid out their account, their side of the story in detail. 
Um, and their account is that Grando is an extortionist, that you know, he had a brief affair with Becky from 2012-2014, that ended, and their a friendship essentially remained, but it was a friendship in which Granda was trying to extort the Falwells uh, by going public with these claims of the affair, and they you know, basically kind of fed him attention and fed him, uh, I guess, like luxury trips or whatever to uh, placate him, just the word they used in the lawsuit. Um, so that came out, you know, while we were, while we were reporting it, and Granda, I, 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 mean, I think to an extent that that ripped the Band-Aid off again for Granda. Um, it reminded him of, you know, the fact that they were once close to him, that he was once close to them, and in his view were now disparaging his character publicly. Um, and there were interesting moments with that, where Granda would empathize with Jerry, where he would say, you know, I feel bad, but I can't imagine how Jerry's feeling. Um, and by the same token, you know, the Falwells, uh, they have lost a lot. Um, Jerry had a very powerful position at the head of, as the head of Liberty University. He had a lot of influence on the right, and that seems to have diminished greatly. Um, and so they're, uh, and they, they also have, I think, a pretty compelling story to tell that they, I think, would say they could back up as well, that they could back up too. So that's also, I think, worth keeping in mind when uh, listening to the story. Yeah, maybe just one more question on this, similar to kind of how I, what I asked Tierney, like, is there, does this story go anywhere from here? I mean, obviously, Jerry Falwell has filed a lawsuit against his former employer, Liberty University, I guess that will wind its way through the court system. But, um, you know, is there any other reporting you're hoping to do on this story or anything, um, you know, listeners or readers who have checked out the story or hopefully will that they should kind of keep in mind going forward? I think it goes forward in a few ways. Um, there's a couple sort of microscopic ways it goes forward, which is just Granda selling the, his like stake in this Miami real Miami Beach like property, which you know is this like gay friendly hostel and all that. Uh, that's a that's one question. But I think in a broader sense, there's a question over where Jerry Falwell ends up in terms of his influence. Um, you know, does this damage him? long-term going forward, or does he find a way back? I think that's an interesting question. Um, but I think from another perspective, it's also just a reflection of what Josh Marshall, I think, uh, frequently like observes, which is that people who end up who associate themselves with Trump very publicly kind of end up destroyed in some way. And, um, you know, I think Jerry Falwell, in a sense, attracted a lot of the scrutiny that led to this uh, because of his... Uh, you know, because of the really high profile he ended up attaining after 2016. Um, so that's interesting. And I think the extent to which he might be able to bounce back from it is going to be fascinating going forward. One other point I would add there is, you know, the evangelical justification for supporting Trump is partly like, it's the judges, right? There's some, there's a clear like kind of policy trade-off there. But uh, one explanation they'll sometimes give is that, you know, we're Christians, we have to forgive, Right. Um, and I'm kind of curious to see if Jerry Falwell uh, pursues that or if he's going to continue denying outright that um, you know, he was involved with Grando or that what he did in any of this was uh, you know, remotely below board. Right, right. All right. Well, maybe we can uh, end since it is Thanksgiving week. Anything, um, anything you're looking forward to you know, with a couple days off, Tierney or Josh? Maybe, Tierney, you can start. Like any, um, you know, we've all been working... Like crazy, you know, through the election, which didn't obviously end on uh, November 3rd, but kept going and going and going. And, you know, we keep getting these Biden wins headlines again and again as the states get certified. But um, now we get to take a little bit of a break. I don't know, Tierney, anything you're looking forward to um, over the next few days? Um, I'm going to read a fiction book. Imagine that. (laughs) It's just a nice, light 
beachy read. I know it's, you know, the winter, but I just want to kind of get lost (laughs) in something that's uh, not related to the election. So, uh, yeah, hoping to just like lock myself in a room and not take my phone in there with me and uh, read for a bit. Also, also feels COVID safe. So uh, (laughs) that's my plan. That is good. That's a good plan. What about you, Josh? I think so. I'm going to be upstate for a couple of days, and I think we're going to go hiking, uh, which would be nice. nice. Similarly to Tyranny, just to get away from uh, hopefully in, in an area where there's no internet connection, uh, <laughs> to just be away from everything that's happened over the past month or two and just uh, find a way to concentrate, relax. Yeah, I'll, I'll third that as well. I think I'm going to try to take advantage of the like sort of unseasonably warm weather up here, maybe try to bike around Central Park a little bit or do something kind of fun. Well, we're uh, kind of trapped in New York City still for the uh, foreseeable future. But um, <laughs> Josh and Tierney, I appreciate you joining me. Uh, as a reminder, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. And definitely, if our listeners have like a little bit of time this week, uh, a little downtime like we're talking about, read Tierney's coverage on the census, read Josh's story uh, on Granda. Um, really worth your time and honestly, like, part of a, you know, a big reason why you should subscribe to TPM and become a member so that you can support that kind of work and, um, you know, get that kind of, that kind of reporting. So we appreciate, uh, your listenership and your membership and just reading the site. Um, Josh and Tierney, enjoy the, enjoy the break and talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good holiday. All right, bye guys. You bye. too. Bye.